Chapter thirty six of the Tenant of Wildfell Hall. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Laura. The Tenant of Wildfell Hall by Anne Bronte. Chapter thirty six. Dual Solitude. December twentieth, eighteen twenty four. This is the third anniversary of our felicitous union. It is now two months since our guests left us to the enjoyment of each other's society. I have had nine weeks' experience of this new phase of conjugal life. Two persons living together as master and mistress of the house, and father and mother of a winsome, merry little child with the mutual understanding that there is no love, friendship, or sympathy between them, as far as in me lies I endeavor to live peaceably with him, I treat him with unimpeachable civility, give up my convenience to his, wherever it may reasonably be done, and consult him in a business-like way on household affairs deferring to his pleasure and judgment, even when I know the latter to be inferior to my own. As for him, for the first week or two he was peevish and low, fretting, I suppose, over his dear Annabella's departure, and particularly ill-tempered to me. Everything I did was wrong. I was cold-hearted, hard, insensate. My sour, pale face was perfectly repulsive, my voice made him shudder. He knew not how he could live through the winter with me. I should kill him by inches. Again I proposed a separation, but it would not do. He was not going to be the talk of all the old gossips in the neighborhood. He would not have it said that he was such a brute his wife could not live with him. No, he must contrive to bear with me." "'I must contrive to bear with you, you mean,' said I. "'For as long as I discharge my functions of steward and housekeeper, "'so conscientiously and well, without pay and without thanks, "'you cannot afford to part with me. "'I shall therefore remit these duties when my bondage becomes intolerable.' "'This threat, I thought, would serve to keep him in check, if anything would.' I believe he was much disappointed that I did not feel his offensive sayings more acutely, for when he had said anything particularly well calculated to hurt my feelings, he would stare me searchingly in the face, and then grumble against my marble heart, or my brutal insensibility. If I had bitterly wept and deplored his lost affection, he would, perhaps, have condescended to pity me, and taken me into favor for a while, just to comfort his solitude and console him for the absence of his beloved Annabella, until he could meet her again, or some more fitting substitute. Thank heaven I am not so weak as that. I was infatuated once, with a foolish, besotted affection, that clung to him in spite of his unworthiness but it is fairly gone now, wholly crushed and withered away, and he has none but himself and his vices to thank for it. 
At first, in compliance with his sweet lady's injunctions, I suppose, he abstained wonderfully well from seeking to solace his cares in wine. But at length he began to relax his virtuous efforts, and now and then exceeded a little, and still continues to do so. Nay, sometimes, not a little. When he is under the exciting influence of these excesses, he sometimes fires up and attempts to play the brute. And then I take little pains to suppress my scorn and disgust. When he is under the depressing influence of the after-consequences, he bemoans his sufferings and his errors, and charges them both upon me. He knows such indulgence injures his health, and does him more harm than good. But he says I drive him to it by my unnatural, unwomanly conduct. It will be the ruin of him in the end, but it is all my fault. And then I am roused to defend myself, sometimes with bitter recrimination. This is a kind of injustice I cannot patiently endure. Have I not labored long and hard to save him from this very vice? Would I not labor still to deliver him from it, if I could? But could I do so by fawning upon him and caressing him when I know that he scorns me? Is it my fault that I have lost my influence with him, or that he has forfeited every claim to my regard? And should I seek a reconciliation with him, when I feel that I abhor him, and that he despises me? And while he continues still to correspond with Lady Lobra, as I know he does? No, never, never, never. He may drink himself dead, but it is not my fault. Yet I do my part to save him still. I give him to understand that drinking makes his eyes dull, and his face red and bloated, and that it tends to render him imbecile in body and mind. And if Annabella were to see him as often as I do, she would speedily be disenchanted, and that she certainly will withdraw her favor from him if he continues such courses. Such a mode of admonition wins only coarse abuse for me. And, indeed, I almost feel as if I deserved it, for I hate to use such arguments, but they sink into his stupefied heart, and make him pause, and ponder, and abstain, more than anything else I could say. At present I am enjoying a temporary relief from his presence, he is gone with Hargrave to join a distant hunt, and will probably not be back before to-morrow evening. How differently I used to feel his absence! Mr. Hargrave is still at the Grove. He and Arthur frequently meet to pursue their rural sports together. He often calls upon us here, and Arthur not unfrequently rides over to him. I do not think either of these soi-disant friends is overflowing with love for the other, but such intercourse serves to get the time on, and I am very willing it should continue, as it saves me some hours of discomfort in Arthur's society, and gives him some better employment than the sottish indulgence of his sensual appetites. The only objection I have to Mr. Hargrave's being in the neighborhood 
is that the fear of meeting him at the grove prevents me from seeing his sister so often as I otherwise should. For of late he has conducted himself towards me with such unerring propriety that I have almost forgotten his former conduct. I suppose he is striving to win my esteem. If he continue to act in this way, he may win it. But what then? The moment he attempts to demand something more, he will lose it again. February 10th. It is a hard, embittering thing to have one's kind feelings and good intentions cast back in one's teeth. I was beginning to relent towards my wretched partner, to pity his forlorn, comfortless condition, unalleviated as it is by the consolations of intellectual resources, and the answer of a good conscience towards God. And to think I ought to sacrifice my pride, and renew my efforts once again, to make his home agreeable, and lead him back to the path of virtue. Not by false professions of love, and not by pretended remorse, but by mitigating my habitual coldness of manner, and commuting my frigid civility into kindness wherever an opportunity occurred. And not only was I beginning to think so, but I had already begun to act upon the thought. And what was the result? No answering spark of kindness, no awakening penitence, but an unappeasable ill-humor and a spirit of tyrannous exaction that increased with indulgence, and a lurking gleam of self-complacent triumph at every detection of relenting softness in my manner, that congealed me to marble again as often as it recurred. And this morning he finished the business. I think the petrifaction is so completely effected at last that nothing can melt me again. Among his letters was one which he perused with symptoms of unusual gratification, and then threw across the table to me, with the admonition, There, read that, and take a lesson by it. It was in the free, dashing hand of Lady Lowborough. I glanced at the first page. It seemed full of extravagant protestations of affection, impetuous longings for a speedy reunion, and impious defiance of God's mandates, and railings against His providence, for having cast their lot asunder, and doomed them both to the hateful bondage of alliance with those they could not love. He gave a slight titter on seeing me change color. I folded up the letter, rose, and returned it to him with no remark, but— Thank you. I will take a lesson by it. My little Arthur was standing between his knees, delightedly playing with the bright ruby ring on his finger. Urged by a sudden imperative impulse to deliver my son from that contaminating influence, I caught him up in my arms and carried him with me out of the room. Not liking this abrupt removal, the child began to pout and cry. This was a new stab to my already tortured heart. I would not let him go, but, taking him with me into the library, I shut the door, and, kneeling on the floor beside him, I embraced him, kissed him, wept over him with passionate fondness. Rather frightened than consoled by this, he turned, 
struggling from me, and cried out aloud, For his papa. I released him from my arms, and never were more bitter tears than those that now concealed him from my blinded, burning eyes. Hearing his cries, the father came to the room. I instantly turned away, lest he should see and misconstrue my emotion. He swore at me, and took the now pacified child away. It is hard that my little darling should love him more than me, and that, when the well-being and culture of my son is all I have to live for, I should see my influence destroyed by one whose selfish affection is more injurious than the coldest indifference or the harshest tyranny could be. If I, for his good, deny him some trifling indulgence, he goes to his father, and the latter, in spite of his selfish indolence, will even give himself some trouble to meet the child's desires. If I attempt to curb his will, or look gravely on him for some act of childish disobedience, he knows his other parent will smile and take his part against me. Thus not only have I the father's spirit in the son to contend against, the germs of his evil tendencies to search out and eradicate, and his corrupting intercourse and example in after-life to counteract, but already he counteracts my arduous labor for the child's advantage, destroys my influence over his tender mind, and robs me of his very love. I had no earthly hope but this, and he seems to take a diabolical delight in tearing it away. But it is wrong to despair. I will remember the counsel of the inspired writer to him that feareth the Lord, and obeyeth the voice of his servant, that sitteth in darkness, and hath no light. Let him trust in the name of the Lord, and stay upon his God. End of chapter 36 Recording by Laura, Madison, Wisconsin